Happy Father's Day, Cross Connection. Hi, I'm Pastor Mark, and Pastor Miles has asked if I'd sit in and teach, and so we're gonna be in the book of Esther, in book of Esther chapter five. And as we uh, look through this, there's definitely some nods to Father's Day, and just some of the spiritual heritage that we're to put along, and just to you dads out there, just to know that you have a very, very important job, and uh, the most important ministry that you have uh, us men uh, before the Lord when we're married uh, is to our wives and to our children. Uh, and so I uh, just want to encourage you dads and what a valuable, valuable uh, thing it is to have a father involved in your life that uh, loves the Lord and follows the Lord. Um, so with that, let's pray and we're going to start and uh, get into Esther chapter 5. Dear Lord, we thank you so much that you are our heavenly father. And Lord, um, as we look into the scriptures, the story, Lord, of your people and the, just how you keep your promises, Lord, and you intend to keep your covenant, Lord, and you use imperfect people to do this perfect work, Lord, we're thankful that this is written down, that we can uh, relive this story, Lord, and learn lessons from it. So, Lord, be with us. May you send your Holy Spirit to guide us, to lead us, and to teach us, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Well, I wanted to look at some of the background of this first. And what we've seen so far with, uh, in Esther is obviously Esther is called into this position as, as queen, which is just, just this insane story how it all comes about. And then uh, just somewhere near the beginning of her, really her queenship, so to speak, um, a character enters the scene, uh, a guy named uh, Haman. And Haman is an Agagite. And um, he's... Um, has a hatred for uh, this guy Mordecai, who's uh, Esther's uncle, uh, but also he has a hatred for the Jews. And so he launches this plot to get the king to sign off to basically kill all the Jews in the entire 127 provinces uh, that is Persia at the time. And the king consents to this, not, not even really thinking, and then they have a drinking party. and. Uh, and so uh, it says that the people were in confusion or they were perplexed as to how this all came about. And so um, Esther, uh, who's been kind of undercover as far as being a Jew at the instruction of her uncle Mordecai, um, Esther uh, is placed in a position where she is going to need to be the one who is going to let the king know that she is a Jew and the order that he has signed is also her death sentence. And so she does the right thing. There's a uh, supernatural problem, uh, a spiritual problem, and she begins to prepare in a spiritual and a supernatural way. And she goes into uh, days of fasting, and she asks the people of God to also fast along with her. And even it says her maids, uh, those people that work around her and for her are fasting along with her also. And so she uh, is really trying to draw very, very close to the Lord. And that's how she kind of makes the conversion from undercover uh, Jew, which she was at the time, uh, not letting anybody know, to being uh, getting to the point where she can be more upfront about uh, her faith and her relationship and her heritage. Uh, and uh, also with Mordecai uh, being very, very open about it. And how did that happen? How did... Um, two people who had grown up were the fourth generation uh, in 
Babylon, or excuse me, in Persia, uh, in captivity, so far removed from Israel, who had kind of, in a way, been a little bit uh, backslidden in the call to get back to Israel. How did they all of a sudden become so in touch with the cause and their faith and with God? How did they, where did they draw from? Where did that come from? And I believe a lot of the answer to that is their spiritual heritage. Um, they had a heritage and the Jewish people were very good about writing things down and passing down uh, traditions, uh, writing, scripture, um, something called the Shema. And uh, in the Shema, uh, they would recite that, that prayer three times a day. And so even as children, uh, going into adulthood, they would recite that prayer three times a day to be reminded who they are and where their promise and where their hope uh, came from. Uh, there was also something we would call stones of remembrance. And uh, many times when God would do something, uh, the Jewish people would erect a pile of stones. And it says so that when your children's children came by and saw this stack of stones, as it were, um, that we would be, that the Jewish people would be able to give an account of the great thing that God had done in this particular place in this particular day. And so uh, they remembered their spiritual heritage, even though they weren't particularly obedient to it at this time, uh, they had remembered their spiritual heritage and it was very, very important to them. It was who they are. And that tradition uh, continues today. I, I know that in a, growing up in a Jewish neighborhood, uh, they had Hebrew school where they would learn to speak Hebrew, but also the traditions and the history uh, and the writings uh, and about the covenant uh, that they had with God. Um, one story in particular that I know that these two certainly remembered at this time um, was the uh, story in Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 through 19, of how the Amalekites attacked uh, from the rear um, and took advantage of the weakness uh, of God's people. And they did it in a way that showed no respect and no reverence uh, for God. And it was, they were told to never forget that, that God would always remember that and that they were to uh, eventually be wiped from the face of the earth. And so here they are dealing with Haman, who is a um, descendant of that tribe. Um, I was once asked uh, about a little, it was kind of a little history interchange. I was once asked by my old pastor uh, if I had forgotten about 9-11, uh, September 11th. Um, and uh, he said that he had read an article that people fairly quickly forgot about uh, the events that went on uh, on 9-11. And my response to him, and he asked also if my father had, because my father, he knew my father. And my response was that, um, you know, we're still mad about December 7th. We hadn't forgotten that. It was something that was part of our history. It was something that uh, we had grown up with as children. It was passed on to me, part of the history of my own country. And so uh, we remember things that are important to us, uh, history that is um, repeated and taught to us as children. Um, I think one of the most important things that we do as a church is something that we call Sunday school. And I did not grow up in a particularly, you know, overtly religious home. Um, we certainly, my parents acknowledged the presence of God and a respect for God and a respect for God's people. 
but one of the things they did, like so many other families, is, is when they had small children, they felt that they needed to uh, somehow go to a church. And so my parents would uh, take me to a local Lutheran church, and I believe it's St. Mark's in, I believe, Encinitas area. And, um, I have to say that at, you know, five years old, uh, I couldn't tell you the lessons, but here's what I remembered and I always carried with me. I always carried with me that Jesus was the good guy, the devil was the bad guy, Jesus went to the cross for our sins, and the devil was always after us, uh, that Jesus was the Son of God, and then I got a really great snack, and I was in a place where people loved me and were excited to see me and took care of me. And so um, those seeds were something that were planted, and they were so important as I became an adult and started to search for answers and part of my testimony. But that baseline, that you can call it tradition, that, that baby understanding of what God had done and who God was, was planted in my little heart. And that just so important. So I want to also congratulate you dads who have poured time into your children and encouraged your wives in the teaching of your children and the scriptures. And um, as we bring our children to Sunday school, children's ministry, to learn those valuable, important lessons that um, while it may seem they forget them at times, uh, they're implanted and they never forget those. And so that's part of a spiritual heritage. And so that's how we come to remember. We have a baseline for those things. Um, so turn, if you would, uh, to uh, the book of Esther, and we're going to look at chapter 5, and uh, we're going to look in verses 1 through 8. And one thing that we're going to see from Esther's situation here, it, her situation is very dire, and it's very, very real. This is not fake news, okay? This is a real situation. Uh, but what we're also going to know is that God is faithful. But Esther and Mordecai enter into the situation where they do not know what the end is going to look like. They're going to have to trust God and they're going to have to do the right thing. And it's a very powerful lesson. So let's read along with me in verses 1 through 8. Now it, set, now it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house where the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So it was, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, that she found favor in his sight, and the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter, and the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come out today to the banquet that I have prepared for him. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. Wow. So 
what's transpired here is is she has been called to engage the king in a conversation. And this is no small thing. She knew, um, it was well known, that um, you didn't just go and just bother the king. You didn't rush into his presence. Uh, you didn't bug him. Um, he was honestly probably the most uh, powerful man in the world. He had influence over so much of the known world at that time. And uh, there was basically no oversight to anything he did. And so, um, she was going to come and plead her case to the king, but she knew that she needed to do this in a way that had tact. And so I'm sure she was praying and studying. We know that she was fasting and her uh, maids were fasting along with her to try to draw near to the Lord, to be able to have some insight. And so there was the just don't bother the king rule. And um, it was a serious rule. And if you bothered the king, and he did not hold out the golden scepter, meaning, yes, I want to speak to you, I will engage you, uh, it would result in the death penalty. So it was no small leap of faith that she took to come before the king. Now, Esther was prepared for a spiritual problem, and so she was focused. Um, she was preparing her team. Uh, she just didn't come in after she the golden scepter was held out to her. She didn't just blurt it out. You noticed she had a plan. And I believe it's a plan that she thought of as she was sitting before the Lord those days, uh, fasting and waiting for the Lord to speak to her. And so she was spiritually as prepared for a problem as she could possibly get. She had been drawing near to the Lord. Spiritual problems need spiritual methods. We cannot tackle spiritual problems with... Um, uh, practical or just using wisdom, those type of methods. Spiritual problems uh, need spiritual answers and they, you need to use spiritual methods. Um, as I've told my own children again and again, um, you do not get biblical results without biblical methods. Otherwise, you cannot expect a joyful, blessed result, God-ordained result, uh, if you're using methods or you're living a life uh, that does not resemble biblical standards. Um, that's how you achieve those things. You attack spiritual things with spiritual methods. And so she had been fasting. And part of the waiting on the Lord, part of the fasting and showing God your intent and just how important this is to you and, and how much uh, you trust him and this whole fasting process is that you're putting everything else to the side and you're concentrating on just being in the presence of the Lord. And that, I believe, engages the Lord. He sees the earnestness of your plea. He sees the sacrifice and the fasting. Uh, he sees you waiting on him intently for an answer. But drawing close to God in the absolute best way that you can because you expect a result and you expect... Uh, an answer. So much of what we see uh, in the world is designed and set up by our enemy to rob our attention off of what our mission is and take our attention off of God. Um, so much out there, um, there's so much available to us in media through our phones and our iPads and our television sets. Um, 
listening to podcasts, all those things. There's so many things that are designed to draw us away and to make us worry. Um, it's almost as if there was a force out there that was trying to convince us that somehow that God was losing. If you just look at our news in the, in the news right now, um, we're in Pride Month, and that can be so discouraging because we know that that's just not a healthy attitude uh, to have uh, towards something that's sin. And it's not good for the nation, and it's not good for the people that are celebrating it. Uh, ultimately, uh, it ends in disaster, and we know that from history and from what we see in people's lives. Um, we see things like uh, the trans movement being rammed down our throat, um, politics. We see things like fear of sickness and world events and all these things that are designed to take our attention, our trust, and turn it into worry and make us believe if only for a minute, and by a process of, it's more of erosion than any one thing of our faith and our trust and to remember our spiritual heritage that this does end well. That God does say he will neither leave us nor forsake us. Um, that we have an all-powerful God who watches over us and that we can trust in. But all these things are designed to take us away from those things and to bring anxiety, um, to bring hurt, to bring bad judgment, maybe to compromise a standard uh, something to pull us away from the Lord just a little bit at a time. And the truth of the matter is, is the things that we're witnessing um, that are uh, things that are uh, uh, totally against our faith and the principles of God and good be call, being called evil and evil be calling good is actually a very small percentage of what's going on. It's such a minuscule amount, but it's being broadcast in a very loud a very effective uh, way when the truth of the matter is is that God is in control yes we know how the story ends God wins and uh, we go to be with our Lord and Savior and that Jesus is coming back and that's why we have what we call an optimistic view and hope for the future because of the return of Christ and so um, I believe Esther and Mordecai are tapping into their spiritual heritage and the fact that they know that ultimately God is going to win. They don't know how God is going to win. They don't know what piece in this puzzle they play exactly, but that they're going to trust in the Lord. And so um, one of the things that I see with Esther here is that Esther's actions demonstrate that timing and focus are everything in a situation like that. Um, I fish. It's part of my family's heritage, uh, commercial fishermen, but I, I fish for fun now. And uh, one of the greatest experiences I've had is uh, going uh, down south off the coast of Mexico, about a thousand miles, and we go fish a place where we catch um, large tuna, tuna that are in the 200 pound plus range. They call them cow tuna. And um, you can always tell somebody that's inexperienced when they're fishing larger fish, uh, because the first thing they do as soon as they start to feel that line peel out and what a fantastic feeling it is to have that large fish grab the bait and start to run that line out. And as you're watching that line run out, your first reaction is to set that reel into gear and to pull back on it as hard as you can because you're so excited uh, that you have been chosen, so to speak. But 
Timing is everything. And you can tell a rookie from an experienced fisherman in this particular type of fishing because the experienced fisherman slowly brings that reel into gear and lets that big fish pick up the slack and he lets that circle hook do its work. And that's how you hook the big fish. But that takes insight and it takes timing, it takes patience, uh, it takes trust in the method, so to speak. And I think that's what we're seeing with Esther here. Um, she has this, is given this knowledge and this insight into who she's working with. Uh, one of them is her husband now, the king, and the other one um, is Haman, who is an adversary. She, he's an enemy. And so supernaturally, she's able to look into these uh, guys' lives and come up with a plan. Um, we have uh, King Asaharis, who, when you look at his life, and so far what we've read through the first five, or five chapters is we know that he has a weakness for beautiful women, that that's a, a, a weak spot for him and a problem for him. Uh, he has upwards of 600 wives at this point, so that's kind of weird, right? Um, and then uh, we also know that he seems to really like to drink, and he's a, a womanizer, and he's a boozer, we'd call him. Like a, I call him a, a, a wabuzer. I think I made that name up, but he's, he's a wabuzer. He's that what seems to be driving these conversations and these exchanges. There's so much drinking going on and, and um, making decisions uh, that aren't really that, doesn't seem that bright on the, on the surface. Uh, doesn't seem like he's really exercising that much wisdom on the surface because he's being um, driven by these indulgences. And so she knows this about her husband, uh, the king. And so uh, she's going to use this to her advantage. And so I am quite sure uh, that when she showed up in the royal court that day uh, for her to look at her, and believe me, that took some faith because she had not seen him in 30 days. And so I'm sure he had been with the other wives that he had. And so that took some faith. Uh, she had not seen him in over 30 days. And so uh, for the king to select her and tell her to come forward. And he had, let's face it, a bad reputation as to how he treated his queens. And so uh, if he, they ran afoul of him, uh, they were going to be looking for a new job, so to speak. And so it took a great deal of, of faith there. So this womanizing, boozing king, uh, he has an issue. And it's interesting. In Proverbs 31, uh, verses 1 through 5, um, I believe it's Bathsheba who is actually speaking to her son Solomon. And uh, Solomon is making some very bad choices as far as his relationship with women, particularly foreign women, that are uh, bringing uh, different habits and beliefs and things into the palace. And she sees this as a trap, and, and she doesn't necessarily have the best reputation herself in these relationships. And so she's offering her son some advice, and it is written in the book of Proverbs. And I think it's interesting how it, it addresses this situation with King Asaharis also. It says, the words of King Lemuel in Proverbs 31, 1 through 5, the words of King Lemuel, the utterance which his mother taught him, what my son and what son of my womb and what son of my vows, do not give your strength to women, nor your ways to which destroys kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, 
nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all afflicted. So she saw that he was perhaps struggling for, with these things and that wisdom would dictate that this was not a good thing for a king, a leader, to be struggling with. Yet we see um, years later, so many years later, that this king, Asaharis, is struggling with the exact same thing. Uh, in Mark 6.22, which I think is um, interesting, the phrase when King Asaharis says to Esther, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. He literally, it's an, I believe it's called an idiom. It's a phrase. It's something that is said that doesn't really mean exactly, you know, what he's saying. What it means is it's an expression. And uh, this, I'll give you up to whatever you want, up to half my kingdom, took place somewhere else many years later. And it was uh, in the time of Jesus. It was uh, King Herod. Uh, and King Herod was um, at a banquet. Uh, most likely, the wine was flowing quite nicely. And uh, the daughter of Herodias came in and uh, did a dance for him. And boy, it must have been quite a dance because uh, she danced for him and all the other uh, friends there. Um, he was so pleased with this that he offered in almost the exact same language that I will give you whatever you want up to half the kingdom. And as the story goes in um, Mark uh, chapter 6, uh, Herodias um, was feeling pretty guilty because John the Baptist had called out the fact that uh, she was married uh, to Herod, but actually the marriage wasn't quite too cool because um, uh, she was actually uh, already married to Herod's brother, I believe. And so John the Baptist got caught kind of bad-mouthing the government and calling out uh, uh, King Herod's wife. And so uh, Herodias asked her daughter uh, to give her the head of John the Baptist on a plate. And this grieved King Herod because uh, King Herod was not in a hurry to execute John the Baptist because he knew there was a following. He didn't know what would follow or what would happen if he executed him. But now he was caught between a rock and a hard place because he had made a promise and he had to follow through on this. And ultimately it was part of his demise. Uh, this set him on this path as part of his de demise. He was already a, an arrogant, proud man who considered himself uh, the king of the Jews. He was nothing more than a Roman puppet. But uh, he had given himself uh, his power, uh, given himself to uh, women, so to speak, over this dance. And so it's a very old problem. It's not a new problem. And we see its effect on the, uh, even with kings. And so, um, so the adversary, Esther had this, this window, this, this knowledge of who her adversary was and what would trip him up. Uh, what would get him in a position where he would finally make a mistake? And I believe the Lord really shared himself with her. And so Haman's issue was an issue of pride and arrogance. And she knew exactly how to pump this guy up. Uh, she would set up a banquet of wine, it was called. And so she set up this banquet of wine and uh, only invited the king and his number two guy, 
uh, well, it's actually his number one guy, but he was the number two guy in the entire land, uh, the second most powerful man on earth, uh, most likely. And she set him up because she knew he was prideful, that he would be so prideful that it was just him and the king that had got invited to this banquet. And then she does it a second time. And um, I can't tell you, maybe one day we'll be able to talk to Esther about this. I can't tell you why it took two banquets. I can only imagine if she had been spending time with the Lord that um, she was listening for cues and, and waiting for some type of a supernatural knowledge to know what to do. But she knew ultimately it was two banquets uh, that she was going to have to do. And so she invites Haman, who has an issue with pride. She knew exactly what his weak spot was. And so Haman uh, fell for it, so to speak. Now let's go to verses uh, 9 through 14, and let's, uh, let's meet the opposing team, so to speak. So they're at the, you know, they're setting up for the second uh, banquet there, and says, So Haman went out that day, joyful and with glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches, the multitude of his children, everything in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she prepared. And tomorrow I am invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And this thing pleased Haman. So he had the gallows made. Wow. The opposing team. We need to look at the opposing team for a second. Uh, this first character, uh, Haman. And I actually, after reading this, I'm like, this guy's got a problem. Like, he really, really has an issue. And... Um, when I, I actually called a friend of mine who's a, a mental health professional, and I says, can you read the end of uh, uh, Esther chapter 5 and tell me what this guy's suffering from? Because I think this is what they call a narcissist. And uh, sure enough, I got a text message back from my friend, and she goes, oh, definitely. And I got sent a little link on narcissistic personality disorder. And as you read the um, traits of somebody who genuinely... This is a real thing in their life. This guy, Haman, totally fits the bill. And he has this inflated view of his importance and how he wants to look for people. And the reality of his life uh, cannot conquer uh, this vision that he has for himself. And his, this vision he has of himself is larger than real life, so to speak, to the point where it's a sickness and he can't um, be appreciative of the stature that he has and the, 
the blessings that he has, all those go out the window because one man will not bow before him. He is sick about it. Haman is the second in command of the largest nation at the, in his time. He has everything at his disposal. He has power. He has the respect everywhere he goes. Well, except for with Mordecai, people are bowing in worship and respect uh, at his position and who he is. Um, we've learned that uh, Haman translated is the magnificent. Uh, I don't know if he named himself or that was his uh, destiny, but it certainly that's what he thought of himself. He was very in love with himself. Um, he had money. He had children. Uh, he had everything, but he had lost his soul. It begs the question, was Haman really fighting Mordecai and uh, the respect that he thought he was due, the bowing of Mordecai, or was he really struggling with God? His hate for the Jews is supernatural, that you could somehow conjure up uh, this hate on your own. Uh, I just don't buy it. He had this, just this supernaturally fueled hate for the Jews and for Mordecai, and it became a sickness for him. It became a mission for him. Um, when everything in his life was going so well, it appeared, that uh, he couldn't get over this one guy. And that only points to one thing. And that points to a man who is struggling um, with the perfection and the holiness, um, the power uh, of God. And he can't match that, and he's having a really hard time with that. And somehow I think he thinks that if he can eliminate this man or eliminate the Jews, that he can somehow eliminate God's influence over his life, and, and, and he would not be fighting God anymore. But he's in a bad situation. Uh, Mark 8, 36, Jesus asked this question. He says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul. And this is a man who is truly in this position. Let's take a look at Haman's counselors, his friends, and other versions. And if you do the research on this, uh, the way that some of the words are and some of the um, contextual use of these words, uh, it appears that these friends of Haman are magicians uh, or wise men. Uh, these people are engaged in uh, black magic or uh, sorcery. And so uh, he's kind of hanging out with light-minded people uh, that are telling him uh, under the influence of, not of God, that's for sure, that are um, giving him advice. And so uh, then we have his wife, Zeresh. And it, she's a very important character because you're going to see her later on also address a situation along with his friends, the magicians and the, um, um, the wise men. And she has a spiritual heritage also. Um, we find out that actually her spiritual heritage, she had a dad named Tatanai. And Tatanai appears in the book of Ezra. And yes, he is a Jew hater and a discourager uh, also. And Tatanai is one of the men that is trying to discourage Ezra in the rebuilding and the reforming of the nation of Israel. And so her own father was against 
uh, the Jews and the rebuilding of, of Israel. And so the spiritual heritage that she had came from that. As you do a little more research on her, uh, it's quite possible that she was a witch. Um, and I don't mean, you know, uh, a mean wife. I mean like a real witch, like, you know, the broom in the hat type of thing. Um, she was kind of a sorceress. And so uh, some of the commentaries will tell you that. And so that's what it appears. And so she's going to give advice that is tainted, that is ungodly, and is from a point of view that is counter to God. And so um, she's kind of nuts. Um, she tells her husband to have Mordecai hang, murdered, an innocent man, and then go merrily on your way to the banquet. Um, that's pretty weird. So she's under the influence of something and it's not the Lord. And so this is the advice that she gives um, her husband uh, when he comes perplexed uh, with this problem. And we'll see later on uh, that she already knows that her husband is gonna lose. And so uh, the advice not only is um, totally against what God would have somebody do, totally of the devil, but um, the advice ultimately is going to completely lack any kind of wisdom uh, in the situation with her husband. And so um, she encourages him to go kind of on his merry way after that. I was reading some Jewish commentaries on uh, the subject because I like the point of view. I like to look and see because this is a Jewish story and so what they have to say about this. And um, One commentator I was reading makes the point that she needed to invent a new way to kill a Jewish sort of savior in a way. Um, if you look at um, God's people and some of the uh, characters that led um, Israel out of difficult circumstances, um, there were always attempts on their life. And this commentator made the point that um, they had tried to kill, Pharaoh tried to kill Moses with a sword, and then, uh, you know, 40 years in the desert couldn't kill Moses. Um, Joseph, uh, they put him in prison. That didn't kill Joseph. Uh, he got, came back stronger than ever. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, you couldn't burn them in a furnace. Uh, Daniel, you couldn't get them to be eaten by lions. Um, and so this is, appears in scriptures the first time they've used this gallows instrument, uh, she suggests, because she knows the other methods didn't work. And uh, it's a cruel uh, way to die, the gallows. And it was a, uh, they say it's 50 feet high, 50 uh, cubics high. It's about 70 some feet. And it would kind of look like a toothpick um, with an olive. And they would take this per poor person and they would put them over uh, the point of this log and then they would put pressure and run them through. And it was a horrendous way to die. And it was designed to be graphic and to make a real point um, of that you don't mess with the king, uh, that you don't run afoul of the king. And it was designed to strike fear in people's hearts, and boy, it sure did. And so this was her answer for her husband to do this to an innocent man, and then it says, to go merrily on your way to the banquet. So where does this all come from? 
narcissism, this cruelty, and all these things. Well, the ultimate narcissist, um, the ultimate character who suffers from this narcissistic personality disorder, and that's the devil. If we look back to the devil, um, Lucifer's history with God is that he wanted to be worshipped. He wanted the glory. Um, he did not want that to go to God. He had this inflated view of his own beauty and who he was and his value. And it didn't match up with reality. And my old pastor used to say, you know, the devil always overplays his hand. And what we will see as the story continues is that's definitely with Haman, I believe, under the devil's influence, uh, what he does. We know how this story ends. And we know how our story ends. Our story ends with the uh, triumphant return of Christ. And so um, when we look at the story like this, and I can imagine these characters, Mordecai and Esther, um, when I see this story, they don't know exactly how it's going to end. Because God can be victorious regardless if they survive this or not. But um, they're part of this, this plan, this event. And they're only moving forward in the knowledge of God's greatness and his goodness and his covenant, most importantly, his covenant with his people. And so they're totally moving forward in faith. And so um, they have nothing else. And they have a very real fear. This is not a made-up fear. This is a very really real situation where they are going to be uh, exterminated if it's able to, this uh, edict is to be able to uh, be count, uh, carried out. And so um, this is very real to them. And so how does this affect us today? Well, you and I are living in a world where, yes, as I just said, we know how this is going to end. And the Bible tells us that uh, it's going to end with the triumphant, if we don't return, go to the Lord first, uh, the triumphant return of Christ. And uh, we know that the story ends with his victory. We know that his promise is that he would never leave us nor forsake us and that he's always uh, aware of our suffering and our challenges. We only need to honor him and to spend time with him and give him the attention and the respect and the love that he is due. Um, not in a robotic commandment or anything like that, but in a, a love relationship now that we have uh, through Jesus Christ. And so I would encourage you, Choose faith over fear. Do not buy the lies of the enemy. Um, there are so many that have gone before us that have walked through so many deeper valleys and harder things uh, than just what we're seeing on the news. Uh, choose faith over fear. As for me and my house, uh, we will choose to follow the Lord. God bless you, Cross Connection, and praying you have a great week in Christ, praying you see many victories uh, and conquer uh, fear, distraction, and are able to honor the Lord in great victory. God bless you guys.